at KPMG, our people make the difference. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. Hello and welcome to the Battleground Ukraine podcast with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. It's been an extraordinary week in the extraordinary story of the Wagner Group chief, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Only a few weeks ago, it seemed that his star was waning and he was a strong candidate for the chop, both literally and figuratively. Instead, it seems he's back in favour with a man who matters, Vladimir Putin, who's just made a visit to the Kherson and Lukansk areas. We'll be discussing what this says about the state of Russia and what it means for events on the battlefield. We'll also be looking at the ongoing ramifications of the big leaked US Pentagon intelligence dump. Now, as we predicted last week, it didn't take long to find the culprit. And we'll also be looking at the way the war is changing the diplomatic landscape as China moves to gain maximum advantage from the new realities that have been created. So let's start off with Prigozhin. Uh, All the evidence is that Putin's intervened to knock heads together and end the long-running row between the Ministry of Defence and Wagner. Uh, he's also just visited commanders in the occupied Kherson and Luhansk oblasts, thereby identifying himself as a war leader, which I would have thought uh, ties his reputation and his fortunes very tightly to the outcome of the fighting of the next few months. Now, it seems that he's relying quite heavily on Wagner to perform for him. Their forces appear to be receiving reinforcements, ammunition and political credit, all a big change from the recent days when Prigozhin was complaining bitterly that his men were being starved of resources and used as cannon fodder in the very costly assault on Bakhmut. Instead, it seems, uh, they're being built up as a sort of parallel army with the same status as the regular army, being legitimized, you might say. Yes, that's right. It's interesting that the Russian state Duma is going to consider amendments to the Russian law to grant the same rights to mercenaries, i.e. Wagner personnel, as to regular army veterans, which would seem to suggest that Prigozhin's position in the Kremlin inner circle has been, as you suggest, Patrick, considerably strengthened. Now, the New York Times has just reported, citing those leaked Pentagon documents, that Putin personally attempted to resolve the feud between Wagner and the Russian MOD by holding a meeting between Shoigu and Prigozhin way back in February. So he obviously wants to end the feud, but now he seems to have gone a stage further and seems to be privileging what is a private army over his own troops and encouraging their expansion. That's right. Wagner-affiliated sources announced earlier this week that uh, the group's training up to three motorised rifle brigades uh, to reinforce their flanks in Bakhmut. Uh, It may be that Putin sees Wagner, who seem to be able to attract recruits uh, despite the appalling record the organisation, which is something we'll talk about later, has as a way of boosting troop numbers without having to resort to a big mobilisation effort, which carries obvious political risks. Now, Putin's clearly got a, taking an even more hands-on approach to the war than previously, and this was signaled by his highly publicised trip to eastern Ukraine. And I think he sees Prigozhin as very much part of his plans for the defence. But despite all this, you know, things are going pretty well for Prigozhin, but he doesn't seem to be able to shut up, does he, Saul? Uh, even when things are going his way, he can't resist offering some free advice to the boss about how he should conduct the war. 
Exactly right, Patrick. Um, I mean, there's been this most extraordinary statement he's given to the press or made public this week in which he's called on Putin to stop the war and consolidate. I'm just going to read out a couple of the quotes because they're pretty bizarre. He said in the article, theoretically, Russia has already made a point or made its point by destroying a large part of the active male population of Ukraine and by intimidating another part of it, which fled to Europe. He went on to say, Russia cut off the Sea of Azov and a large piece of the Black Sea, seized a fat piece of Ukrainian territory and created a land corridor to the Crimea. Now there is only one thing left to firmly gain a foothold to claw in those territories that already exist. Now, so the question you might ask, Patrick, is why he's making this bizarre statement at this time. Now, it would imply that he's not terribly optimistic at the ability of the Russian forces more generally to hold the Ukrainian counterattack. And he actually goes into a bit of detail about that, saying that the Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive could break Russian lines. And he hints darkly that one of the reasons the Russian forces are being undermined is because there are elements at the heart of government uh, that are pro-peace, or as he puts it, there are likely to be members of Russia's deep state who would betray the interests of Russia for their own gain. So he's still playing this political battle with certain elements in the Kremlin. And it's maybe in also in some sense is saying if things go horribly wrong, uh, you know, it's not my fault. There are others who should take responsibility. There's also in his plan, he actually states quite clearly that um, once they've actually consolidated their hold on these territories, they should start uh, systematically murdering uh, Ukrainian males. Now, in case anyone thinks this might be just more bloodthirsty bluster, that the sort of thing we've come to expect from Prigozhin, there's strong evidence that his men are already doing just that. Uh, There's been a couple of interviews given by former Wagner Group fighters uh, who've actually gone back into Russia, they've done their six months, on their treatment of Ukrainian children and other civilians and prisoners of war. This comes from an organization called Gulagunet, uh, which is a human rights outfit. And they released a video interview last week with two former convicts who'd finished their contracts. And one says quite clearly he was ordered specifically to kill children while taking control of Solidar. Remember that town, you know, supposedly strategic small town. And he personally buried 18 children that he killed in uh, a few other locations, Krasnodar, Krai, and uh, Saratov. And this is backed up by another a Wagner fighter who was interviewed, a more senior guy. And he claimed his unit killed 23 civilians, 10 of whom were unarmed teenagers. He also said that Prigozhin takes a personal interest in, in all this, and he, he likes watching reco- uh, videos recorded of these executions. Now, we've seen a lot of this since the war began, but what I think is really shocking, it still has the power to shock me anyway, is that this sort of depravity is institutionalized and celebrated. No one's trying to hide this up on the Russian side. They seem to be using their degeneracy as a weapon in the hope this will terrify their enemies into submission. And all it does on the Ukrainian side, we've I think we've discovered, is to reinforce their belief that this is how the Russians will treat them if they win they'll be plunged into this abyss, the sort of thing we haven't seen since the you know, Nazi occupation of Eastern Europe. And they really have no choice but to fight on. 
Exactly right. And if anyone's in any doubt of the consequences of even leaving a small chunk of Ukrainian territory in Russian hands, they should uh, look at some of the details you've been talking about, Patrick. It's pretty horrific, isn't it? Okay, let's move back to the Pentagon leak. Um, Well, it seems that the guilty leaker, or Jack the Dripper, as he liked to be known, is a 21-year-old gun-obsessed junior member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard called Jack Texera, who's suspicious of federal government And apparently his motivation for the leaks was trying to impress his friends by posting these top secret documents on the gaming site Discord. Now, quite how such a junior rank oddball, he is, I think, the equivalent of a lance corporal, had access to such sensitive material is a complete mystery to me, Patrick. But the US apparently, which spends 20 times as much as the UK on intelligence, has always given quite a large number of people access to its secrets. How many? Well, up to 2 million have security clearance. I doubt that means top secret security clearance. And Texera was working for the intelligence branch of the Massachusetts Air National Guard, but it still doesn't excuse uh, this extraordinary uh, revelation. Will so many people have access in the future? I doubt it. This, I suspect, is going to change. But you called it absolutely right, didn't you, Saul? You said last week it was probably some disaffected, uh, when we were looking for culprits, uh, we, we dismissed a Russian uh, intelligence operation pretty much straight away. And, and you quite rightly said it's probably some uh, disgruntled sort of junior Trumpist. And this guy does seem to have been a bit of a sort of mega Trump worldview supporter. So, uh, yeah, so you got that one absolutely right. I'm just going to raise a few developments on the diplomatic front here. More strengthening of the China-Russia axis. The Chinese defense minister, Li Shang-Fu, met with Putin in Moscow a few days ago and uh, pledged to increase military exchanges and cooperation, etc., etc. And this is you know, moving to uh, implement the, the things agreed between um, Xi Jinping and Putin uh, in their late March meeting. And again, this, um, this claim being made, we've already entered a new era of uh, Russian-Chinese Relations. Well, this seems to me to be further evidence that uh, China is far more interested in building its um, rather cynical partnership with Russia than it is in placating the West. You've always taken the view, saw that uh, when it comes down to it, you know, it's a trade with the West will actually trump uh, whatever kind of diplomatic power play maneuvers that might emerge uh, to the benefit of China from their support of Russia. Well, I'm afraid I don't. I don't agree with that. And, you know, everything is, you know, China is seeing lots of uh, encouraging signs, often from the West. So I'm thinking of Macron's visit recently when he suggested that Europe had no wish to be drawn into the Taiwan crisis and um, or potential crisis. And, uh, you know, once again, made the case for European strategic autonomy, i.e. that, you know, Europe was not going to dance to America's tune when it came to grand strategy. Now, all this must be music to Xi's ears, I would have thought. Yeah, it absolutely will be music to his ears. And it is very concerning, Patrick. I, I, I still haven't entirely lost my conviction that economics will trump strategic influence uh, as far as the Chinese are concerned. But we're going to have to wait and see. I mean, certainly there's been increasing tension ramping up over Taiwan in recent days. And the US responding doubly, actually, one with sort of physical assistance by sending Harpoon 
anti-ship missiles to the island and they would of course be used in a in the event of an amphibious attack and this has infuriated the chinese need needless to say but also the uh, u.s general in charge of the pacific warning about the rise of china more generally and the massive expansion of its military forces both conventional and slightly more alarmingly nuclear um the assumption or at least the anticipation that by about 2030 i think it is they will have 15 hundred uh, nuclear missiles of various types available to them. Uh, only a couple of years ago, they had about two or 300. So that is all incredibly alarming. It's true, Patrick. Coming back to Macron, you know, he does have this, I think as a domestic leader, he's, he's quite impressive. But on the international stage, he's got this amazing arrogance mixed with naivety, it seems to me. I mean, we all remember his um, you know, his rather pathetic attempts to uh, to become a big player at the at the outset of the of the conflict, the current conflict. You know, making these sort of personal appeals to Putin, which got rebuffed. But he doesn't seem to have learned that China does exactly what it wants. Uh, something that I'd forgotten, but I was reminded of the other day, is that China and Ukraine actually signed a treaty of friendship back in 2013, in which China underwrote Ukraine's territorial integrity and pledged. Uh, not to take any action that would damage its sovereignty, which by backing Russia, of course, it, it's doing exactly that. It's doing it all the time. So the lesson is that China will do exactly what China wants, and it cannot be trusted to actually abide by any agreement it might make with the uh, with the West. As something that seems to have passed Macron by. Yeah. Now, there's an interesting other bit of news, actually, uh, Patrick, that came in, I think, yesterday. Uh, and it's a report that Russian ghost ships are charting the vulnerabilities of, you know, Europe generally, but Britain's underwater data cables, offshore wind turbines. Sorry, excuse me. Can you just explain what a ghost ship is? This is not a term I'm familiar with. Yeah, a ghost ship, they're kind of traveling with their signals turned off. They're, you know, they're, they're not on any obvious merchant course. Um, uh-huh. so they're coming in and out of the, of the sort of, you know, intelligence radar. Uh, status ships with no good reason for being there basically oh fascinating now i just sort of you see these images of the uh, soviet era t-55s which are uh, there's been pictures of them loaded onto sort of flatbed railway trucks trundling towards the battlefield but that really does suggest they're scraping the barrel doesn't it i um, Apparently, none of this, these tanks have been um, upgraded significantly. They're basically the same kit that was rolled out 65 years ago nowadays uh, when they actually went into service in 1958. So they're actually, as someone pointed out, three times older than the men who will be inside them. Uh, so it's you know, really obsolete technology. Uh, they haven't got proper range finders, ballistic computers. The sites are very primitive. There's no adequate gun stabilization, etc. And it made me think of, of what sort of cars were around in Britain in 1958. And apparently the best-selling cars of the time were the Ford Anglia and the Morris Minor. So basically, these are the kind of armoured equivalent of, um, of an old Anglia or a Morris Minor, which kind of um, puts it in some sort of perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, and it might, um, you know, that might be additional reason as to why Prigozhin and others surely in the Russian military are properly concerned about what might happen next. Um, again, no firm word on uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive for the very good reason. I think the deputy defense minister said this week, well, we're not going to tell you <laughs> when we're going to start, are we? And we're not going to tell you where we go. There's some interesting questions uh, we have from listeners uh, about the counteroffensive. So we'll come on to them in a minute. But just going back to the ghost ships for a second, Patrick, because there's an interesting connection between these ghost ships and 
and the blowing up of the cables, and I'll explain why. Well, apparently the spy ships disguised as research vessels and fishing trawlers are part of a Russian mass reconnaissance program in the North Sea. And this has all come from an investigation done by Scandinavian broadcasters. Uh, And here's the connection. Uh, European security services have been on high alert since the bombing of the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines, an act of sabotage which even some of our listeners have attributed to anyone and everyone, including British Special Forces and the American government. But here's the clue. The significant clue as to the true culprit was in a report that a Danish patrol vessel had taken 112 images of Russian vessels loitering near the site of the explosion just four days before they took place. So uh, I'll leave you to join the dots there, Patrick. Well, they were. So it's come back full circle, hasn't it, to, uh, to where we were at the beginning. OK, that's all for now. Do join us after the break. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. Well, once again, we've got another large and varied selection of questions from you. Thanks so much for sending them in. Uh, We'd urge you to continue doing so and apologize if your question isn't always answered. Uh, We have so many. Okay, here's the first question from Adrian Tasker. It's on the counteroffensive. And his question is, is this uh, delay, this endless delay, a factor in alert fatigue, as he puts it, for the Russian army. In other words, it's keeping them on high alert. They don't know where it's going to come. Is this actually reducing their capacity to deal with it when it does actually come? Um, Probably, yes. I I don't think that's the reason why they are delaying, actually. I think they're making sure they get all their ducks in a row. They're probably adapting their plans as they see what's happening on the ground, as any good military should be. I mean, one of the great arguments, uh, and another question we've got later on is, could they counterattack in Bakhmut? Yes, they absolutely could. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be the main effort. I think the reality of this counterattack is it's going to happen in multiple different directions. Uh, and like any good commander, brings me back to Alexander during the Battle of Guagamela. I mean, we're going all the way back to, is that 332 BC? Anyway, off the top of my head, I can't remember exactly when that was. But the point about that battle is he felt where the resistance was weakest. And when there was a crucial movement of troops to a different part of the battlefield, you see this in many campaigns, he struck where he thought they were weakest. And I think that's exactly what the Ukrainians will probably do. Yes, they will have an ultimate objective, which no doubt is to split Crimea off from the land bridge. But how exactly how they do that, I think will be quite flexible. Alexander and Gal Gamila. I haven't heard that one since I did my <laughs> ancient history A level. Uh, wow, that's that's real uh, deep knowledge, Saul. Well done. That's uh, very impressive. Okay, I don't know if you can answer this one, Saul. This is um, from Max, who's asking about the uh, yellow ribbon movement in southern Ukraine, and uh, he's asking this. Do you know what that is? It, it doesn't ring any bells with me, but it's, it's it seems to be some kind of um, partisan organization now this pops up from time to time doesn't it we hear reports of kind of mysterious actions well behind the russian lines uh, which suggests there is some kind of um, you know seriously organized and capable partisan operations being carried out he's asking you know how significant are there and you know he's referencing second world war partisan 
operations, etc. Do you know anything about this? Yeah, exactly. He talks specifically about the, the, the French partisans in, in World War II, the Maquis, by 1944, there were a lot more of them than there had been in 1940, of course. And there would be even more of them, Patrick. This is really your territory after at the end of the war when a lot of people claimed they'd worked in the resistance. But in any case, they actually did some really good stuff behind enemy lines to coincide with the D-Day landings. And I suppose Max's question is, is this likely to happen in the Ukraine? Uh, absolutely, it is, Max. I don't know about the specifics of the Yellow Ribbon movement. I suspect it's connected to the fact that the Ukrainians were you know, using yellow flashes to mark themselves out, although, of course, they use other symbols too, I think, like blue too. But uh, the point is they will undoubtedly be in communication with these guys who will be carrying out sabotage operations as the counteroffensive begins. There's absolutely no question about that. Special forces will be involved too. Uh, and the combination of all these different efforts could really make a difference. I mean, there's nothing better, as the as the Russians discovered in the Second World War, to having people behind enemy lines that are sympathetic to your military cause. It, it kind of doubles the effort and makes the enemy, of course, reduce the ability uh, to have all their troops on the front line. Yeah, it's a very complicated picture, isn't it, with partisan warfare anywhere. Actually, this is something, as you say, it's what I'm engaged at the moment, my book on the liberation of Paris in 1944, August 1944. One statistic I came across, which really surprised me, was that in terms of the volume of weapons dropped to partisan movements, the French were pretty much at the bottom of the list, because the fear was they'd fall into the hands of communists, um, who made up a large part of the of the actual active resistance, armed resistance. And that would have uh, negative consequences for de Gaulle, but also for America and uh, Britain after the war. So in Yugoslavia, which uh, Churchill famously said, you know, we don't care about Yugoslavia because we're not planning to live there when the war is over. He said that to Fitzroy McLean famously when uh, McLean said, aren't you worried that these uh, communists will... Uh, will actually get the upper hand as a result of the aid we give to them. Anyway, uh, it was the the Yugoslavian partisans who got the bulk of the stuff that was dropped uh, via SOE operations, etc. So, yeah, it's a complicated picture. Um, I don't think uh, Zelensky will have that problem uh, when it comes to uh, Ukraine. Okay, there's another interconnected one from Connor, who's in Florida, and he he's really asking, as Ukraine's material and skilled manpower shortages grow apace, uh, with our leaders' expectations for their imminent counteroffensive and our expectations too, Patrick. Um, Connor is seeing many parallels with the exhausted, desperate war planning in the late Second Reich, that's Operation Michael, that took place in 1918, otherwise known as the Ludendorff Offensive, and also the Third Reich in Germany, when, of course, they launched the desperate attacks of the Ardennes, trying to recreate what had happened in 1940. And his question is, is this history repeating itself? Well, <laughs> my take, that is Connor's take, is a Militopol could well become Ukraine's Antwerp. Uh, Antwerp was the objective of the Ardennes counteroffensive in 1944, an unattainable target in a desperate bid to split enemy forces and snatch victory. Ukraine should proceed with caution. What are your thoughts? Um, it's a very interesting historical parallel, Connor, but no, I think there are significant differences here. In no way can you say Ukraine's position on the battlefield is as hopeless as Germany's was in either 1918 or 1944, when in effect the war was lost and it was the last desperate throw of the dice. Ukraine has had the upper hand in a military sense for a considerable period of time. And the more support it gets from the West, the stronger it becomes. I believe they are waiting uh, their time, as I've already pointed out, to launch as effective a counteroffensive as they can, so that when 
negotiations eventually take place, and they will, they are in the strongest position to demand a complete withdrawal from Ukrainian territory. Whether that will also include Crimea or not, we don't know. Of course, it's possible it could be demilitarized, but we'll have to wait and see. But certainly, this is not a, a, a situation of desperation that would encourage, that would imply the Ukrainians should proceed with caution. No, I don't think so. Okay, a fun one here from Aaron in Sheffield, who draws our attention to an article on the BBC or an item on the BBC about the seeking helicopters which we donated to Ukraine, one of which, I didn't know this, had flown in the Falklands. I probably saw it because I was in the Falklands, as <laughs> listeners from to our uh, previous pod will know. So it is astonishing that 41 years on now, that seeking is still flying operationally. Um, I'm trying to think of another bit of kit, a bit of air kit that actually has this extraordinary longevity. Maybe a Dakota, you know, but that's a, that's that's. I suppose that's a, in a way that's not a dissimilar kind of aircraft to the Seeking, and it's a kind of you know jack of all trades. But it is amazing, isn't it? You th- you think that an, an aeroplane, uh, an aircraft, would actually be much more likely to suffer from you know, obsolescence early on than, say, you know, a gun or a tank. But it is, it is amazing to think that it's, it's still going. Yeah, I don't, and, you know, listeners may think, well, isn't this just the same as the T-54s? Well, no, not really, because <laughs> tanks have become incredibly sophisticated. And as, a, as an offensive weapon, of course, their vulnerability to counterfire is, you know, makes putting T-54s absolutely suicidal. Um, the Sea Kings will have all kinds of uh, modern electronics that will help them to, to avoid being shot down. But there's a broader point here, I think, Patrick, about air power, and that's the fact that neither side are really using air assets directly over the battlefield. So these Sea Kings will be used for resupply a little bit further down the line. Um, and I'm sure they're, they're being put to good use. But it's, you know, it's, I, I think it's a testament to how well they were built in the first place, frankly. Okay, a couple of people have asked the question, one of whom is Morgan, uh, he doesn't say where he's from, whether the, the uh, Pentagon leak was deliberate, a tactical credibility game for the US, get unwanted Russian troop movements into a trap or to Ukrainian advantage. The goal sanctify the purpose, Maskarovska, you know, uh, which is the Russian tactic of uh, disguising where they're actually going to make their real move. Well, I think there's a kind of, you know, mixture of messages here from from Morgan. Someone else, another question uh, puts it in a slightly better way, which is that could the leaks have been deliberate to get out a lot of information that, you know, is not really top secret? I don't entirely agree with that either. I certainly don't agree with uh, Morgan's point that it may be a deliberate tactical game because there was no actual specific detail in, in the leaks apart from the fact that, and this, bear in mind, was two months old, that the Americans has, had assessed that the Ukrainians needed a lot of extra kit, particularly anti-air weapons, um, and they weren't entirely convinced that the offensive was going to be that successful. Well, if we had Phillips O'Brien on, and we're going to try and get him on for the big interview in the next couple of weeks, he will say there's been this kind of underestimation of the Ukrainians since the start of the war, and almost at every turn, this overassessment of Russian military capability and underassessment of the Ukrainians has been proven wrong, uh, and he suspects it will be again in this case. So, no, I don't think it was a deliberate tactical game, and there were very real consequences to these leaks, and mainly concerning um, America's relationship with its allies. Um, remember, the leaks showed that the Americans were spying on their allies, like um, uh, the South Koreans and, and also the Israelis. But also this unwillingness, I suspect, by some of the uh, the five eyes, that's the, the big five intelligence uh, Western groups, to share intelligence when there's the danger that the, the Americans are going to leak it. 
As far as the British are concerned, Patrick, I think there was only one area that was sensitive uh, in terms of the leaks, and that was the acknowledgement um, by the Americans that British special forces were actually operating in Ukraine. That's an open secret. We've been talking about it since the beginning of the conflict. So, you know, I don't think a huge amount was lost there. Okay, just a quick short answer to James, who's asking the name of the YouTube channel that you um, recommended the other day, Saul. It is, this is um, the one that actually knits together kind of visuals from from the battlefield and give sort of explanatory comment on what's going on there. It's called Reporting Ukraine. Yeah, re- Reporting from Ukraine. And, and actually, I've got some someone uh, sent a tweet to me asking for the actual address. It's www.youtube.com forward slash at RFU in capital. So if you go to that, you'll see you'll see this extraordinary series of reports. And I had a look at another one a couple of days ago, and it was very interesting on the fighting in back moods. It talked about how Russian airborne forces have taken over the brunt of the fighting from Wagner, and that on one particular day, and this was only a couple of days ago, they'd made initial headway before being forced to withdraw with hundreds of casualties. So it seems that they're still holding on. Uh, Questions are, how long can they keep holding on? We don't know. They're they're being forced into an ever smaller area. But is this all part of an attempt to degrade Russian forces uh, and fix them in that position before striking elsewhere? We'll see shortly, I'm sure. Just going to mention one here from Victor Silvan. Now, we've we've taken a kind of pledge, haven't we, Saul, not to speculate about how the... (laughs) Ukrainians are going to go about their counteroffensive, but I think we've got to just mention this one. Um, he says, uh, with the Russians now digging in along the front line, would it be unthinkable for the Ukrainians to simply attack north into the Belgorod area instead? Uh, that would require them going into Russia, wouldn't it? Uh, and by doing so, bypassing all the Russian prepared defences and force the Russians to move out of their set positions, Uh, Ukraine could then swing south to roll up the Russian front from behind. So this sounds like a kind of Ukrainian version of the Schlieffen plan, doesn't it? Where they do the the unexpected and basically carry out this sort of huge encirclement, which is the dream of all commanders. What do you reckon? Well, it should be on the table. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with Victor. And just as a quick aside, I mean, Victor also said in the beginning of his message that uh, our interview with Simon Seabag Montefiore could have been the best podcast he'd ever listened to. Simply an extraordinary episode. Um, we agree with that, uh, Victor. It, it was a wonderful interview. We, we, we've done many others, but but thank you for that. But anyway, getting back to the point, it should be on the table, Patrick. This is war. Um, the Ukrainians are fighting for their lives. Why on earth shouldn't they consider going into Russian territory as part of military operations? But the truth of the matter is that the West, in particular uh, America, are insisting that their weapons aren't used, and that will include the tanks and the high miles and everything else, in an offensive way into Russian territory. It's absolutely bizarre. It, it, it sort of underlines the point that the Ukrainians are expected to fight for their lives with one arm tied behind their backs, much to the frustration of many Ukrainian commentators. But that is the reality on the ground. And I think that the Ukrainians so desperately need Western support that they will stick to the rules of the game and try and break through Russian lines rather than go around them. Um, uh, but as I say, you know, Victor, you're absolutely right to ask the question. I don't think they're going to do it, though. Just to add to um, that comment about Simon Seberg Montefiore's interview, which did get you know, rave reviews, uh, it seems like the word is spreading about the podcast because we've just passed a landmark, which is uh, 2 million downloads. So that's you know, terrific 
boost to our our morale and it's great to to know that we're, we're getting this sort of reach and that we have this i think you know brilliant interaction between us and the listeners so you know that's onwards and upwards uh got one here from neil an interesting subject several people ask about this and he's he's asking about the whole question of prisoners, uh, the treatment on either side of, of the Ukrainian, how the Ukrainians treat their prisoners and how the Russians treat their prisoners. Um, he's asking about prisoner exchanges. But in general, he's saying um, he's asking about numbers specifically. Well, neither side is actually giving any numbers. But I think it's an opportunity here to actually talk about the, the way that both sides do actually go about handling prisoners. Now, this is another aspect of the savagery of, of the Russian approach and the you know, relatively civilized or indeed civilized approach that the Ukrainians use. Once again, we come back to this question of the different standards that both sides hold to. It seems to me that the the Russian treatment of prisoners doesn't get enough airtime or you know coverage in the in the media because they are behaving absolutely barbarically. I'm, I was reminded of the uh, story from way back in in July. Olenivko is is this prisoner of war camp in in Russia where a lot of the prisoners who were captured in Mariupol in the um, Avastal uh, siege were taken. Now, I think we've all forgotten what the Russians did to to these prisoners. They basically uh, blew them up inside the prisoner of war camp. They, of course, claimed that this was a missile, high Mars missile fired by the Ukrainians. In fact, it seems to have been a systematic attempt to kill uh, prisoners who'd been so badly tortured that if they were ever shown in public, it would reveal just how ghastly their treatment of, of prisoners is. On the Ukrainian side, now I'm not saying this is a sort of you know, propagandist for Ukrainians, it's, it's just established fact. They do have prisoner war camps all over the place, and they are monitored by the UN uh, Human Rights Organization. So they are, as far as one can tell, uh, they are being treated very well according to Geneva Conventions, etc. Whereas on the other side, you just have sort of unparalleled, well, I, it's not unparalleled, the, the savagery, I would say, is very reminiscent of the way that the Russians treated their prisoners in the Second World War, and indeed the Germans treated their Russian prisoners. So once again, a sign that you know the 21st century, well into the 21st century, we're seeing levels of barbarity that we thought had disappeared forever. Okay, question from Caleb in the US. Uh, and he makes some good points here, I have to say. I don't entirely agree with uh, the broader sense of what he's trying to say, but he makes some good points. So what are they? Well, while in the US roads, systems and infrastructure is crumbling due to the lack of funding, the hosts of this program have the got that's our program, of course, have the gall to say that the US should send even more of its citizens' money to Ukraine. And just to be clear, Caleb, uh, we think all the West should send more money to Ukraine. The, uh, the US happens to be providing the biggest chunk. He goes on to say, if Putin is such an existential threat to Western democracies, why are European countries only now starting, however meekly, to prepare to stand up to Russia? Very good question, Caleb. He goes on to say, people in the US are tired of European countries outsourcing their national security to the United States, while European countries often boast about their social programs and free secondary education and their health systems. It never seems to dawn on any of them that without the US guaranteeing their security, their economies would be able to support exactly zero of the programs of which Euros always seem to be so proud of. Um the broader point here from Caleb is that, you know, we should start looking after our own defense. And he's not so happy about the US spending all this money because surely this is a European problem. No, Caleb, it's a world problem. Uh, fortunately, we're all in it together as Western democracies. The US is the richest uh, and most powerful militarily. But he's absolutely right to make the point that NATO t- needs to take more responsibility. It has been able to leave the US to to pick up the brunt of the defense and it needs to do uh, more 
uh, for itself now, but that they need to all stick together over Ukraine, we're not in any doubt. And without US support, Russia would almost certainly have had its way. So I agree with half of what you're saying, Caleb, but the US needs to stay strong in its support of Ukraine. Absolutely. Which brings us back to remember that early interview we did with Max Hastings when he was uh, very eloquent on the subject of, you know, the relative lack of gratitude that Europe was uh, showing to America for the fact that once again, it stepped in to actually, as you say, shoulder most of the burden of actually confronting aggression, totalitarian aggression in Europe. So, yeah, I mean, um, I do I do actually accept the fundamental point that you're making there, Caleb. Okay, and finally, we've got a uh, we've got a message from Emir, who seems to be living in Ukraine. He says, "Hello, gentlemen. Interesting conversation with Julius. Uh, that, of course, was the Julius Strauss uh, big interview on Wednesday. The etiquette about restaurants is correct. Now, what Julius was saying is that if you go into a, a restaurant in Ukraine now, if you choose to speak Ukrainian, and they're basically Russian speakers, they have to switch to Ukrainian uh, and vice versa. So he says that what Julius was saying is correct. The waiters and waitresses match whatever language you speak. Now, he speaks a language called Sergik, which is both mixed together. So that's obviously a hybrid Ukrainian-Russian. But the story he wants to tell is more interesting, which is um, it's about a Russian Orthodox church, his wife, and he visited in Lutsk in northwest Ukraine. When we walked into the foyer, the first thing my wife and I noticed was a sign saying, you can't leave notes for the priest to pray for you or your relatives if you are baptized in a non-canonical church. Well, the Ukrainian Orthodox Kiev Patriarch is considered non-canonical, and he was baptized into that church in 2018. So this discrimination, and bear in mind this is in northwest Ukraine, even applies to him so his ancestry is the former Yugoslavia. So in his view, it's very weird and very ominous uh, as far as he's concerned. And it does put the so-called culture wars into perspective, as Julius was pointing out. Emir ends off with this Moscow patriarchate is not to be trusted. And in the end, their presence must be wound down in Ukraine, in his humble opinion. OK, that's enough for us for one week. Do join us for the big interview next Wednesday and the following Friday when we'll have another dive into the latest events with analysis and discussion. Goodbye.